If this is your first time here, the kids are being led by adults to more adults to teach them tonight. Welcome uh, to Wednesday night. We're in our third, I guess, yeah, third um, spiritual discipline study. And this one tonight is going to be meditation part two. And if it goes remotely according to plan, we'll get through everything we need to tonight and move on to prayer next week. Um, if not, we'll, we'll do meditation part three next week. So um, it's a nice thing about not being rushed. We can take our time if we need to. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into it. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for this time, uh, just in the middle of the week, to stop and to, um, to consider uh, what your word says about disciplines. Um, Lord, we are, um, we're thankful that you give us a means by which we can know you and a means by which we can grow in our understanding of things and a means by which we can grow really in our relationship with you. And so um, as we've prayed in the previous weeks, we pray for honesty. I pray that um, we would um, be honest with ourselves, be honest with each other, be honest with you um, regarding um, where we're undisciplined and that we would strive together uh, to be more disciplined in the areas that you call us to. Um, some of what we're going to talk about tonight I know is just kind of foreign or not even remotely practiced. I know that's the case for myself. And so, Lord, I just pray for um, insight and discernment um, that we wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we are thankful uh, for this time. We humble ourselves before you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week um, we cons considered first that there's a difference between Eastern and Christian, Christian meditation. What, what's the difference between Eastern meditation and Christian meditation? Yeah, uh, one is emptying your mind and one is not. Um, Eastern meditation is where you empty your mind and you try to focus on absolutely nothing and you get to this state of something or rather that's hard to explain, but there's words that are made to explain it that don't make much sense either. Um, and, and it can be peaceful for sure, but I want to be very, very clear that that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Christian meditation because a Christian meditation is quite the opposite where rather than emptying your mind, you're filling it. So from what we've talked about so far, what are we filling our mind with? God's Word? What are some other ways to say that that we considered last week? Yep, things that are true about God. What was Joshua called to meditate on day and night? The law, so God's commands, God's, the details of, of how we obey. So uh, there is a difference between those two types of meditation. We're talking about filling our minds with the things of the Lord, with truth about God, with realities that He has revealed so that we might think about them more. Um, what did we learn from Joshua 1 about meditation? Do you remember Joshua 1? Go ahead and turn there if you want. We can, we can read it together. Just in a few short verses, we kind of got a crash course on, on meditation uh, at the very beginning. This is a pivotal time for the nation of Israel, and Joshua was taking a leadership role. And in, in chapter 1, verse 6, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do, all the, the, to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, 
that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So what, is, what are the few things that we learn from that verse about meditation? Yeah, that if you're meditating on something, it should bring about change. Something we considered last week was that all of the different, I think it was some 58 forms of meditate or meditation that are found in the Word, that all of them sort of have the common theme that it's not just a matter of meditating, but the purpose is changed behavior. The purpose is, is obedience. So what else do we learn from Joshua 1 about this? I think the way we summed it up last week was that in order to be what we're called to be, which is what, is it, what are we called to be in this chapter, in this verse? Strong and courageous. So in order to be strong and courageous and to do what we're commanded to do, what are we called to do here? Meditate on it day and night. Right before that, we're called to do what? Is a roof coming off this place? Good night. That or we got a big critter somewhere over there. Um, yeah, we're called to obey the law. So in order to be what we're called to be, which is strong and courageous, do what we're called to do, um, which is obey the law, meditation is what helps us to be careful about that. What we learned from Joshua was, do you think he knew the law? Of course he knew the law. Do you think he had thought about it a lot? Of course he had thought about it a lot. He could probably recite it to you. He could, he could say things to you about the law that are, are largely foreign to us. It would have been common knowledge to him. But God says, even though that may be true, Joshua, you meditate on the law day and night. It's not enough to just know it. It's not enough to just hear a sermon that we have to sort of press it down into our inner being and consider it and really, really take it in. So what else did we learn last week about the placement of meditation? When do we do it? Day and night. Yeah, between Bible reading and prayer. That was helpful for me because if I just say, okay, I'm going to take 10 minutes to meditate, that's generally going to be a train wreck, a distracted, ugly, silly, pointless train wreck. But if I understand that biblically, you know, we saw in Joshua, he says, meditate on what? The law. And so it's this, you've got to hear something from the Word, whether it's preached, whether it's taught, whether it's through a devotional, whether it's just through reading it, you spend time in the Word. But a lot of times we'll just jump straight from that into prayer. And we read last week, I think it was um, some Bates said that often our prayers are ineffectual because we didn't spend any time meditating before we prayed. And that was just sort of a common knowledge for the guys in his day that you take in the Word in whatever capacity, preaching, teaching, reading, studying, devotionals, meditate on it, think on it, roll it over and over again, go through questions, go through details, consider words, consider things repeated. And then after you've done that, that work, go to prayer and see maybe what it means that the prayer of a righteous man has much power and it's working. So last week we had a mashed up definition that we took into account all the forms of meditation in the word. And I'm going to read this again this week to kind of lay the groundwork that we're going to build on. So meditation, the 58 times it's mentioned in scripture in different forms. I went and looked them all up, mashed it together, and we came up with this. Meditation, a Christian meditation according to the Bible is musing, sometimes pensively, contemplation, 
uttering, talking, communication, sometimes with a musical notation, to ponder, imagine, mutter, and even sometimes roar and groan in an onomatopoetic sense. Onomatopoetic, write it in your notes, such a good word, sense. So that means, like, you sound like a crazy person, right? I mean, that's what this is saying. It, to truly meditate as a Christian, it's okay to... And you're going over things, and you're, you're ruminating, you're, you're chewing on it. That's a very godly thing to do. Um, and so th- this, is, this is saying, take those things into account, because that's how we process things. We were created in a certain way, and we kind of, there's this muttering and talking and pondering and reflecting, um, reflecting the sighing and low sounds one may make while musing. Um, the scripture refers to it as mental exercise, planning that is often accompanied by low talking, to converse with oneself, to premeditate or meditate before, to take care of, to revolve in the mind, imagine, to care for, or to attend carefully. So we come up with sort of a rounded out definition that says you're just working things through internally. You're going over it. Maybe you're kind of muttering, talking, but the point is to pay careful attention. And the whole point of all that is change behavior. So what we found is that God, in fact, has much to say about your thoughts, which is maybe a different way of thinking for some of us. I think growing up, I was much more aware of what God had in store for my actions. You know, I mean, growing up as a kid, usually my parents weren't scolding me about my thoughts. They were scolding me about my or they weren't giving me as much direction in my thoughts as they were in my actions. And what we're seeing here is that we may be more aware of what God expects of our actions, but what we do with our minds as his creation is of extreme importance. And I'm fearful, even if I'm only speaking from my own experience, I'm fearful that we often neglect what we do with our minds. We don't really, I think it's a lot easier to turn on a TV show and just be distracted for two hours than it is to say, am I actually doing with my mind what God calls me to do? Now, this isn't a boycott on all TV or anything like that, but I want to make sure that we can really be honest as we're going through this. I've been overwhelmed with, wow, God really cares a lot about my thoughts and about how I work through them and how they play out biblically. And I think we have a majority of our lives that that is not really given that much airtime. And so this feels a little foreign, um, to me anyway, as we work through some of it, because taking control of your thoughts, it's sort of like, well, you can think it, but don't you dare say it. You know, that's kind of what I grew up with. It don't matter if you think it, but, but don't you dare say it. Don't you dare do that. But it's like, well, what produces the behavior? Something that you thought, something that you set your mind on. So... Um, God, God has a lot to say about what we do with our minds. And, and I actually, rather than saying we don't meditate enough, I think where we landed last week, we kind of began to get to it at the end of the study, was I think we meditate a lot more than we realize. Rather than saying, well, we just don't meditate enough, we just got to meditate more, I think the reality is we, we meditate more than we realize. It may just not be on the right things. And I've had to keep a very careful watch on this in my own life. I mentioned last week just in the, at the end that I used to go to sleep watching the news and I would wake up watching the news. And I was struggling with, with like being bummed out, sort of depressing thoughts. And it's because that's what the news largely is. And some of it's not even news. And so 
um, I was like, well, if that's what I'm taking in in my mind and that's what I'm putting into my mind as soon as I wake up and you leave a TV on all night, 10 feet from you, it's like, well, well, yeah, maybe there's a connection between how you're feeling and what's going on in your head. And so I think that we actually meditate more than we realize. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Paul, in this section of Corinthians, is um, he is correcting those who are kind of putting down his teaching and and he's not he's not approaching things the way they would wish he would approach them. So um, the little subtitle in your Bible says that he's defending his ministry, and it's because there's there's norms about the way you 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 launch off into the kind of things he's doing, and he's not following the norms, and so he's he's explaining why he's not doing things according to the flesh, because they're saying you know you should you should fight in the flesh because this is a, a fight that is in the flesh, and, and he's explaining in um, verse three, chapter ten, verse three, he says. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Like even just taking some time to meditate on that verse would probably do us a lot of good. Because that's a pretty, that's a pretty profound and complex thing. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. God has given us divine power to destroy strongholds and arguments and lofty opinions raised against Christ. And part of the equation is taking your thoughts captive. Very simply, I mean, we said up front, there's not a whole lot of complex, how do I do this? It's just a matter of what is it biblically. So what is meditation biblically? Part of meditation is making sure you take your thoughts captive. So my question is, what do you think it means to take your thoughts captive? What's that sound like? Okay, examine them, choose to agree or disagree with them, okay? It's good. That word indulging is appropriate. It's this, um, I forget who gave the definition, but they said anxiety is just fear run amok. It's just, you just let that run and you let it go and you kept following it rather than taking it captive. When you take anything captive, the nature of captivity, 
how does it come about? What'd you say? A trap? Something has control of something else. And how do they generally take control of something else? Overpowering? What'd you say over here? Fight. It's a battle. You don't usually um, gently sort of kind of take something captive. The purpose of captivity is to exercise dominion, is to say, I, I am going to rule over you for, in whatever capacity for whatever period of time as long as you are under this captivity. And so captivity in its nature is kind of violent. It's kind of purposeful. And so here we see take your thoughts captive. I don't think that's going to be achieved in a manner that's sort of wishy-washy and, and uh, you know, maybe I'll try that next time. I think about it. No, you need to be planning that as soon as you start going down that route of fear or anxiety or cynicism or just things that aren't true, you, you have the power within you. God created you in a particular way to where you can take whatever's running out and you can take it captive. You can exercise dominion over those thoughts. And so if you struggle with thoughts that are impure, if you struggle with thoughts that are anxious, if you struggle with thoughts that are full of fear, by God's design, he gives you the power to reel those things back in and exercise dominion over them. Captivity of thoughts is not an impossibility or God would not command us to do it. Captivity of thoughts is a beautiful blessing from our Lord. And it's interesting here because what does it say? Take every thought captive. What does it say after that? Yeah, to obedience in Christ. So it's not just about, I don't like the way it makes me feel when I get anxious because I think, okay, like it usually it starts out somewhat rational and generally moves in the direction of just irrational and eventually ends up in a place of just stupid. That's usually how that, those thoughts run down some crazy trail. It's like you start off and, oh, am I feeling okay? Oh, well, maybe... Is that, is that a lump? Oh, is that a, is that, oh, maybe I'm dying. Can I breathe right now? Oh, man, is it, and, and all of a sudden, blah, 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 and it's just one thing after another, after another, after another. I'm not making light of if you have an actual ailment. I'm just saying those are the kinds of thoughts they run away. They get really bad really quick, and I, we're actually going to talk about actual ailments of the flesh in, in a minute, but what I want us to see here is we reel those in. We take those thoughts captive, and the focus, remember what we've already said, the focus of meditation, the purpose of it throughout all of Scripture is changed behavior. So you take the thought captive, not just so you get rid of the bad thoughts, but you take the thought captive to obey Christ. You see the changed behavior there. And frankly, I just think that's incredibly empowering. Like, there's plenty of things in the scripture that we're going to suffer. We just need to suffer well. Um, life's not fair. God's sovereign, even over the mess. And there's things that are, that are hard to swallow, but there's also some things that are incredibly empowering, like God has created you to be able to take your thoughts captive so that you can obey Christ. So you don't have to be ruled by them, but you can, in fact, rule over them as you do things like set your mind on the things above and being transformed and not conformed. And so I think this is very empowering. And one step toward this, toward taking these thoughts captive as part of our meditation is asking what is being repeatedly cycled through your mind? What is being repeatedly cycled through your mind? So what are the things that are a distraction in your relationship with the Lord? 
What are the things that are a hindrance to your obedience to the Lord that are being repeatedly cycled through your mind? Repetition is a very strong tool. Repetition is a very strong tool. It's, it's a strong influence. Um, there, there's a ton of scientific evidence that would say repetition is a very strong tool. And then we see it biblically as well, even in the way that we're taught to study the Bible, look for things that are repeated because God's not just full of hot air. If he repeats something, he's doing it on purpose. He's appealing to us according to what is good and right. And so um, uh, we, we talked about it a little bit, but la- last week we touched on that repetition is the rationale between psycho-cybernetics, a big nerdy word that we're going to bring in a Bible study. And Jerry was a big enough nerd to actually know what that means. He, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, Maxwell Maltz. I've studied him. I'm like, you, what? Who, who, who is that? So um, it's like, I know the word. Who's Maxwell Maltz? You know, I just use him as an example. But I actually went and looked at it a little more, and I'm kind of glad that we didn't get to it last week because what Jerry brought up kind of caused me to go do a little more exploring. And psycho-cybernetics, it, it has nothing to do with anything really cyber. It's, it's, this guy was from the 1960s, and he was a plastic surgeon. And cybernetics, he was going, the Greek of cybernetics was like a captain of a ship bringing it to safe harbor, is the, is the sense in what she's talking about. So psycho-cybernetics is saying, in a sense, he's trying to empower you by use of your brain to bring your ship into a safe harbor of, of peacefulness and, and of encouragement. And so um, the interesting thing is that he was a plastic surgeon. And what he found was that he could give someone the perfect face, but they still weren't happy. There was still more work to be done. And that actually led him down a completely different path on saying, on, with a goal of rather than just healing outer scars, healing inner scars, because he realized that no matter how well he healed the outer ones, there were still inner scars that people had to work with. And he didn't get to this point until he was like 61 years old. And then he wrote this book that sold 30 million copies in the 60s. So, I mean, th- this guy, is he's, he's done a lot of research and he's had a lot of experience, but the whole point is that repetition is a big part of it, that um, the study of the effects of simple repetition on the inner self are, are profoundly, um, uh, they have a significant effect on how we view ourselves, and, and repetition itself, actually, just the science of it, it, it's interesting, you don't even have to believe what you're saying, <laughs> that if you say it enough, there's a sense in which you kind of become transformed, and you're when you're transformed in the inner self, you kind of become transformed in your behavior. So I wanted to read an excerpt from this because I knew that if I just went down that road, I would start sounding like a crazy person. And uh, if you want to call someone crazy, I'd rather be him and not me. And so I wanted to read this um, excerpt from his, his, uh, his book, and he's talking about um, the importance of repetition in studying, actually. And, and, and he relates it also to meditation. And um, Foster in his book says this, He says, we may smile condescendingly at the old teaching method of recitation, which, by the way, that's that's why um, catechisms are so effective, because you're speaking it down into the ear, and then it comes out in our heart, and so there's this repetition that's good there, and and that's why a lot of our um, forefathers in the faith did that, and why we do it today. Um, He says, we may smile condescendingly at the old teaching method of recitation, but we must realize that sheer repetition without even understanding what is being repeated does affect the inner mind. He says, ingrained habits of thought can be formed by repetition alone. Thus, 
changing behavior. This is one reason why so many forms of spirituality emphasize the regular rehearsal of the deeds of God. Like it's normal for us to talk about, um, you know, in catechism, you know, who made you? God. What else did God make? All things created. Why did he make it? For his glory. That's a normal thing in in spirituality. It says, this also is the central rationale behind psycho-cybernetics, which trains the individual to repeat certain affirmations regularly. For example, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That Stuart Smalley thing from Saturday Night Live is a total poking fun at the massively popular movement of psycho-cybernetics and just positive thinking. And the shtick on that, that whole skit was to get you know, the popular star to look into the camera without laughing. Like I remember one with Michael Jordan. Do you remember seeing that one? Where he's like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. People like me, and he's trying not to laugh, and that's the funny part about it. But Stuart Smalley is the—he's uh, um, actually a politician now, which is interesting enough. But he's a brilliant guy, but um, creepy in that skit. Um, but uh, uh, it says um, you, it's trains the individual to repeat certain affirmations regularly. For example, like I love myself unconditionally, or I'm a beautiful person. It says it's not even important that the person believe what he or she is repeating. Only that it be repeated. The inner mind is thus trained and will eventually respond by modifying behavior to conform to the affirmation. This principle has, of course, been known for centuries, but only recently has it received such scientific confirmation. And then he says this. This is why the issue of television programming is so important. With innumerable murders being portrayed each evening on primetime TV, the repetition alone trains the inner mind in destructive thought patterns. That, that's kind of scary. Because what we're getting at here is that, what we talked about earlier, you're thinking about something. We're meditating on something. We're repeating things through our brain to some capacity. I want to be careful on this because I don't want I don't want it to sound like I'm just dismissing this joker. I'm saying he's profoundly insightful on the effects of repeated themes through our brains. I mean, the kind of people that have done this and studied this and worked with, like Vince Lombardi and his success with the Green Bay Packers. Um, he he did this psychocybernetics. The night uh, the 1972 Miami Dolphins were the last NFL team to have a 17 and 0 season, completely undefeated, and they were massively moving in the psycho-cybernetic stuff. They would have a practice in their mind. <laughs> they would practice in their mind. It's crazy, in my mind. Um, uh, so um, the biblical way of explaining psycho-cybernetics is, is really easily Romans 12. If you're not transformed by the renewal of your mind, you're going to be conformed to the world. There's just not a neutral category for our thoughts 
There's not, you can't say, you know what, I don't feel like thinking about anything deep, I'm just going to watch TV. And whatever it is that you're repeatedly moving through your brain, which I would offer, when this was written, violence may have been the big deal, but um, violence and lust and all kinds of, everything from, like, there's a good amount of sorcery on the Disney Channel that you got to kind of watch out for because it sneaks up on you. You're like, oh, when did we go to sorcery? When we were Mickey Mouse's clubhouse and now we're changing the things with a spell. What in the world? And so it's, it, it is not neutral. Scripture is very clear. The encouragement is be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to the world. You can't, to say it another way, you can't tra- be transformed by the renewal of your mind while you're being conformed to the world. They're leading in different directions. And so this whole psycho-cybernetics, repetition, all these things, Romans 12 just makes it very clear. You will worship something. You will meditate on something. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, my mom, she's she's just talked about when she's, you know, struggled with anxiety or anything like that that she'll just repeat the name of Jesus. I mean, it's very simple. She'll just sit and repeat the name of Jesus and she'll find sort of this centering effect and this calming effect that, that is good. I, it's interesting, too. I wonder if there's a correlation between the good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, on which ones actually <laughs> followed through with, with their, their uh, responsibility on the law. Did someone else raise their hand over here? Someone oh, it was you, ma'am? Keep it short. Yeah, and, and um, we're so quick to, you know, how does this make me feel or what do I think about this or what do I think about how this played out that, yeah, part of it is figuring out what you think about it, but what you think about is not the most important part of it, going back to the word, going back to a verse like that and saying, okay, am I doing this? Am I, am I considering what God thinks about this? Am I considering what God instructs me to do when this happens? Because a lot of times we, we step off into the wrong way of doing it only to have to confess our sin and repent, then go back and start at square one and then do what God would say. And so meditating on these verses is very helpful for that. And Joshua 1, um, you don't have to turn back there, but the result of proper meditation is shown to us in, that, in those verses. Um, it says, um, uh, for then you'll make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. 
So the result of proper meditation is making your way prosperous and having good success. And one might conclude that without meditation, it's unlikely. I mean, that's something that's kind of arrested me in this study. Without meditation, according to that kind of you know, truth, I, I think it's unlikely, maybe impossible, to prosper and have good success according to the Lord. Um, remember that when it comes to meditation, the Bible stresses upon changed behavior as a result of our encounter with the living God. That's a big part of the reason that the Israelites wanted a king, is that they wanted someone else. They didn't want to hear from God directly. They wanted to hear from someone else because they knew that being in the presence of God was serious. It was a real deal. And the being in the presence of God will always result in, in, in necessary change. And that shook them to their core to such a degree that they didn't want God, Yahweh, the presence of God, as their, their king. They wanted a king like everyone else had that was less, less um, intimidating to such a degree that when they were at the base of Mount Sinai and everything's shaking and there's smoke and there's fire and they're completely freaking out, what do they make to be their God other than a little golden calf? Something very timid, something very um, not scary, something that should I want to turn it away from me, I can just turn it on the, on the mantle, just something small. And so it's, it's a sign that being in the presence of God does invoke the fear of God and that, that will un inevitably bring about change. Giving these realities, um, I want to consider for a couple minutes what Scripture says not to meditate on. We're totally going to have meditation part three next week. Turn to Romans 8. Aren't you all excited? You get another week. I want to hear from you all next week about how your meditation is going. Turn to Romans 8. This was actually my verse this morning. I, I have my little verse on my phone, the daily verse, and I wake up and I try to just read something from the Word before my feet hit the floor. It's just helpful in starting the day in that manner and setting my mind on something rather than the thousand other less holy things that might creep in first, first thing in the morning. And this was the verse, Romans 8, 6 through 8, and it says, um, it says this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it cannot, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think we like to read verses like that and say, those who are in the flesh are, are far less likely to please God. And that's not what it says. You're in the flesh, you cannot please God. This soberly reminds us that to set the mind on the flesh is death. And a closer look at the word flesh in this, um, the King James Version says the carnal mind, the carnal state, and then it says flesh. It's all the same word, and, it's, and it's just, it just means flesh. There's nothing spectacular about the word when you study it in depth. It means flesh. It means outward things. And I believe that this stresses even more so the important for meditation for those who do have maladies of the actual flesh. Think about this for a minute. Everything from skin rash to high blood pressure to a seizure disorder to heart problems to anxiety to paralysis to blindness, this is saying in part that if you struggle with such things, and there's a lot of other things. I mean, that's not an exhaustive list. Y'all can probably think of a thousand other things. This is saying at least in part, God says those aren't good things to sit around and think about. You have to consider things for your health. You have to maybe consider what you eat. You have to maybe consider, did I take my medicine? But if you have something in the flesh, God is saying, 
it's not more fruitful to just sit around and think about that. It's more fruitful to do what you need to do, to be responsible, to be a good steward of what God's given us in the flesh, but not to set your mind on the actual flesh, but consider the spirit, because your value is not found in the sum total of your physical abilities. There's more going on here, and there's more at play. And it's interesting, because I want you to consider for a moment the irony that it was a plastic surgeon that did the psychocybernetics thing. There's an irony here that um, um, Maltz was very aware that success in his clients couldn't be found in the flesh. I mean, if anyone's in the flesh business, it's a plastic surgeon. And, he's, and he was the guy who said, you know what? The physical scars, it doesn't, there's, there's in, inner scars that have to be healed. And so it's, it's very interesting to me that um, that's the guy who, who came to the importance of where we set our minds and made it much more culturally popular. Um, so we don't set our minds on the flesh, number one. Don't set your mind on the flesh. The actual flesh or just outward things, just worldly things. This could also include just finances and projects and business and relationships. Don't just set your mind on the carnal nature of those things. Consider the spirit and the deeper things that are at play. Look also at Luke 12. Go ahead and turn to Luke 12. So we don't set our mind on the things of the flesh, which will come back around in a, in a minute. We'll touch on it more. That's why I'm not spending more time on that. And this is interesting to me too. In Luke chapter 12, this is right after the section on not having fear of those who can hurt you. And I think it's interesting that he mentions this um, Look at verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus talking. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. According to that verse, what else should we not be meditating on? What we should say when? when we're brought before the authorities, when we're being persecuted for our faith. I don't know about you, but if I get into a cycle of thinking about what I'm going to say when I'm brought before the authorities, and I just, man, what would I do? How would that work? What if, what if I got taken into captivity? What, if I did, what would I say? How would I defend? That can cause a lot of anxiety, and I think in the world that we live in, it's a, it's a world that when the media capitalizes on fear. I mean, people who are terrorists terrorize. They want to invoke fear because fear brings anxiety and it brings out the weakness and, it, and, it, and it, you're, in a way you're lording over people. And so what, what we're seeing here is that God says, um, don't think about what you would say and how you would defend yourself in such a setting. Because I'll give you the words in the very hour. And in fact, the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what you need to say. So we could say, well, why does it matter to God what I think about if I was taken into captivity? If I was taken before the rulers and authorities to give an account for why I love Jesus? And God's saying, to, to think about that ahead of time in this manner and meditate on it is not fruitful. Because it'll get in the way of your dependence upon the Holy Spirit in the moment that you need him. It's kind of complex. I mean, you, you just got to think about that. And think about why would God, in the words of Jesus, when Jesus is teaching in the gospel, why would he go to such a, a degree to tell you, I don't want you to think about that right now. 
I'll give you what you need in the moment. It's all about our relationship. It's all about dependence on the Lord. It's all about truly trusting him when you're brought to the end of yourself and you have no one else that you can trust. You have no one else that you can rely on. And there are people who need to know that. I think if we lose that message throughout generations and generations, there will be a generation that comes about that needs to know this and doesn't hear it when they're brought before the ruling authorities because of the faith they have in Jesus. God will give you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what you need to say to defend yourself and to represent him. He'll give you the words in the moment. That should be a comfort and encouragement to us. So we've considered what meditation is, what to meditate, what to meditate on, um, when we're called to meditate, what we're not to meditate on. Now I want to take a moment here, just in closing, we've got a few minutes, um, to make sure we understand the purpose of meditation biblically. Turn to Revelation 3. I had a really wonderful time this last few days looking at Revelation 3 because it does a good job of bringing together all the verses we've looked at so far on meditation. This is one of the letters to the churches in John's um, um, apocalyptic vision of, of Revelation. And it's the church in Laodicea. And um, what, what I want us to see before I read this is when we set our minds on the right things and we work not to set them on the wrong things, the purpose in doing all that is to create emotional and spiritual space. This is something that he talked about a lot in this book um, in, in, as far as meditation goes. Creating emotional and spiritual space. Now, before you think, oh, that sounds very, create space for emotions and stuff. Like, just, just go with me for a minute here in Revelation because I, I was floored by these verses. Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation to the church. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. I mean, think about setting your mind on the spirit versus the flesh. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent, church in Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, it's not real obvious at first, but I want to ask a few questions to try to focus us in on what this has to do with meditation. What was the church guilty of? Being lukewarm. They were guilty of... Laodicea says, well, 
You can be transformed by the renewal of your mind, or you can be conformed to the world. I think we're going to choose a middle ground. The middle ground isn't there. That's what God calls lukewarm. So they're guilty of being lukewarm. What were they setting their minds on? What, were they, what was coming out of their mouth? Like Lindsay said in Psalm 19, what's coming out of your mouth can show what you're setting your mind on. What was coming out of their mouth? What were they setting their mind on? What? Wealth. Yeah. Their communication to the Lord as he has heard it, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. So they're setting their minds on the things of the flesh. They're meditating on something, and what they're meditating on is making them lukewarm. And what's making them lukewarm is that they're setting their mind on the flesh. Just worldly crap. We got plenty of clothes. We got plenty of money. We're good to go. And that's what God's hearing from them as opposed to, Lord, I need you. Lord, please come close. He's looking at them and just seeing people who, we're good. We're fine. We're making it. Not a whole lot of needs here. What did this cause them to miss? What did they not see that God had to bring to their attention? Yeah. Their actual condition. They weren't making or leaving any room and any space to see how they actually were. They have genuinely thought, God, we're good. And God says, the problem is that your mind is set on your riches. Your mind is set on what you have. Your mind is set on fleshly things. And what you can't see because you're meditating on the wrong things is that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. They missed it because they weren't giving time to consider their state. They weren't giving time to consider where they were spiritually. What's the solution? In the verse. What has to happen before you can do that? Repentance. What's the picture given to us in this verse? Open the door. You have to open the door. What they missed out on here is the, the, the real state that they were in, and they missed the solution. And God, go, he is so merciful, he is so merciful that he says, this is what you think you are, this is what you actually are, I love those whom I discipline, hint, hint, I'm disciplining you right now, and then he says, repent, and then he gives them this picture of, I'm God. I'm knocking on the door. Open the door. To open the door is to, to, to give space that is needed. Open the door to the one who is knocking and welcome him in. When do you normally hear this verse being used? In reference to what? Salvation and evangelism. As if we're going out and kind of knocking on people's hearts the way God knocks on their hearts and they're going to maybe open the door and then they can be believers. This is written to the church. Open the door as God knocks is not something that was written to unbelievers. It was written to believers. 
It was written to a church called Laodicea. It was written to an actual church made up of actual people who had gone through the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of faith, and they had become worldly. They had become conformed to the world. And he's saying, I'm knocking on the door. You have to open the door and create space to understand who you are. And look at what he offers. Christ seeks to dwell in the inner sanctuary of the heart. The king of kings desires to eat with us and commune with us. We're often unaware of what God offers because we have not taken the time to open the door, to make space, spiritual space, to grow with the Lord. And look what he offers. This is a good thing to close with. Buy from me gold refined by fire. He's saying, your riches are not what you think they are. I'll give you riches, gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. Insinuating, because you're not what you think you are. You, you don't have treasure. I have treasure. And then he goes even further. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So he's saying, you say we got enough money. No, you, you have no idea what treasure is. And if you would just give me time, if you would open the door and spend time with me, meditating on my ways, I'm going to show you more about yourself. You will understand the fear of the Lord. And I'm going to give you true treasure, true riches. And I'm going to clothe you. You think you're fine. We're good. We got clothes, God. We're good. Stop setting your mind on the things of the flesh because spiritually you're naked. And you need to be covered by the Lord. And what he offers is white garments that are beautiful so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And even on top of that, you say that we're, we're in good health. And he says, you're blind and you're poor and you're pitiable. And I'll give you salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Part of repentance is meditating. They go together. Part of our meditation is spending time saying, I, I'm not going to set my mind on the things of the flesh. I'm going to open up to some spiritual realities. I want to spend time with the Lord. I want to invite him in to create this space, this space that is emotional and spiritual where God can do work on our hearts and the inner self. I, I cannot stress how important meditation is, and I cannot stress how much I've neglected it for the majority of my life. This has been intensely convicting for me personally. Um, I hope we can all be honest about where we are and consider in the crazy, we live in a culture that is nonstop, it's information overload, schedules are full, frantic is a way of life, and God is knocking on the door. I, I think that should arrest us. God, God wants to spend time with you. The creator of the universe, the king of kings, cares about a relationship with you. He doesn't just want a statement that you depend on. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you. And in that relationship, you're changed. You're not just changed and thinking, okay, I got my head around what it means to obey. I'm going to go obey. No, meditate on it with the Lord. And in, in the proximity close to him, you'll be changed. And then you'll go and be holy. It's the righteousness of Christ that we want. I'm going to pray to that end. Lord, we love you. And... I want to confess in front of everyone here my sin of not opening the door when you're knocking. My sin of defaulting into setting my mind on things that are foolish 
and have no lasting value. Lord, I want to repent of that. I want to walk in holiness, and I think that includes meditation. So, Lord, I, I confess that, and I, I want to be more spiritually minded and less fleshly minded. And, Lord, my hope is that we would find real joy and peace and clothing and treasure and salve in making sure we have uninterrupted time with our Lord. Lord, I, pr- I pray that you would convict our hearts as you see fit. And that maybe this week there'd be less TV and less iPad and less phone and less any other device. And more time just considering you and thinking over and practicing in our minds and meditating on and rehearsing your ways. Not only that, help us to lead our children to do the same thing. Because I don't think the coming generations are going to default to being less distracted. And it's our responsibility to raise them in the fear and discipline of the Lord. And without being in your presence, they will not know your fear. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the disciplines. We thank you for correcting us and disciplining us and showing us love and giving us opportunities to repent and giving us opportunities to move in holiness. What a great and merciful God you are. You present yourself to us as a shepherd, as one who gently guides those that have children. What a great God. Lord, thank you for that. Help us to take our thoughts captive and honor you in what we do with our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.